0: quick message from me before you get stuck in. This podcast is free, so there's no advertising. I don't monetize it on YouTube. You don't have to sit through any annoying adverts. And I don't even ask for any money through Patreon. But if you could, in exchange for that, drop me a like, leave a comment, share my content. And if you're listening to the podcast version, maybe leave a review of the channel. That would be hugely appreciated. It will help me to grow my audience, which is really what I'm trying to achieve. Anyway, with that, I'll let you get back to listening. Enjoy. Paul, welcome back to 10 Century. It's great to see you again.
1: Thanks. We uh, uh,
0: Well, we had our first interview. It was actually in, I think, October or maybe November of last year we recorded that, but it only just came out. Uh, for anybody who's listening to this and is not aware, there is a part one. This is part two of the interview. And in the first part, we talked uh, a lot about Paul's experiences um, going through test pilot school and then eventually being the chief test pilot of the YF23 program. And I have a confession and an apology to make. So I I did not prepare very well for that interview. And so there were a couple of times where uh, during the interview I was thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I should know about this or I should have known about that. Uh, So what I did as a sort of uh, remedial action for that is I went away and I bought a copy of Paul's book, which is uh, this book here, um, YF23ATF. And uh, apparently it's quite difficult to get hold of, so I I lucked out in, in being able to get it. But the long and the short of it is, Paul, that I did... Um, make me think about some questions that I would have asked first time around if I had prepared properly. So for uh, the purposes of the viewer at home, if you don't want to hear anything more about the YF23, then go to, if you're on YouTube at least, go and have a look at the index listing that's in the description. You can jump ahead to the next chapter Uh, for anybody who's interested in the YF23. Then before we continue with Paul's career, I'm going to ask him a few more questions about YF23. The first is going to be then TIFFs. And actually, I don't know... For anybody who is not familiar with it, this is—you uh, can go and have a look, little look online. But let me see if I can do this. So TIFFS is this thing here. Let's see if I can put it up to the camera. So that's that's what TIFs is. Um, Paul, can you describe what it is and, um, and why it was necessary?
1: Yeah, the, um, the variable stability airplanes uh, are a tool that we use in building an airplane. It's a form of a simulator. And uh, this particular one, and in fact the other versions of uh, F-16 uh, variable stability airplanes, are operated by a place called Calspan in Buffalo, New York. So, when we have a program come up, these airplanes are able to simulate <clears throat> virtually any airplane that is flown, and use, um, of course, computers to do. That, excuse me, <clears throat> computers to do that. But they also use aerodynamics. Uh, the tips, for example, has. Large vertical wings on the on the main wing that give you lateral side forces, and so as a result, they can even though it's a twin-engine turboprop airplane, it can simulate a YF-23 and does it, it quite well within a limited envelope. It can't go Mach 2, obviously, and it can't pull nine Gs, but its response to control inputs can mimic. YF 23. And uh, as we found out, uh, it was it was almost flawless in its uh, replication of the airplane. So um, what you see in the picture is a huge ugly nose grafted onto the front of basically a T-29 a twin turboprop uh, outgrowth of the Converse series of airliners. And uh, the pilot test pilot sits up in the front uh, cockpit of this grafted on nose and flies the airplane in response to the inputs that are simulated by the computer. And so we um, we practiced a lot of uh, up and away things like formation flying, uh, uh, even air refueled with a, a Learjet, if you will, not actually touching with the boom, but flying up very tight with that twin turboprop airplane underneath the Learjet and simulating the close high precision flying that's required for air refueling. Did a lot of landings with it. Um, to to determine if we had good in-ground effect uh, flying qualities, and we did. So that's the long and short of uh, variable stability airplanes. And like I said, the F-16 is also used as a variable stability airplane.
0: The basis then for the code that goes into those computers that that make this uh, TIFFS thing mimic a wife 23 that's is that coming straight out of the simulators because you talked last time about extensive simulator work and the very close proximity of the actual handling characteristics with with what you you would found in the sim uh, those three then can sort of all related
1: they are indeed uh, the actual coding in the airplane i don't recall now whether it was ada coding or not but the actual coding in the airplane the equations that define how the airplane will fly are as much as possible, identical between the real airplane, the flying simulators that we have at the plant, and TIFs and airplanes like TIFs, which are variable. The, the basic uh, algorithms are the same.
0: I read in your book and by the way it's a, it's a great book and if you can if you're interested in YF-23 or, or you're interested in the process of putting together an aeroplane like that then, then get the book if you can because um, it's great but I noticed in there you talked a little bit about the formation flying and um, you know how uh, uncanny it was that it, it felt the same in the, in the real aeroplane but what about things like throttle response or more specific engine response to throttle movement um, how do you deal with that kind of thing do, do you because you've got turboprop versus jet engine uh, is there a d- big difference in that kind of characteristic
1: um well absolutely uh, in the sense that the thrust to weight ratio of that twin engine cargo airplane basically is nowhere near the thrust to weight ratio of an f23 or f22 so you can't do a linear snap from idle to full max power and expect the twin-engine turboprop airliner to jump out like it would f 22. So you accept certain limitations. As I mentioned, you can't pull 9Gs and you can't go Mach 2. So the simulating device, which in this case is another airplane, never can replicate the total performance. It's But you, you narrow it down to specific areas within the flight envelope, landing, formation flying, and with those, within those constraints, they're highly accurate.
0: And, and again, because I'm a bit of a Luddite when it comes to these things, um, but I understand that may be enough to be able to ask silly questions, but with things like ground effect, and you, so when you're in the landing phase, you're coming to flare or whatever, a big aeroplane like that presumably has much more air underneath it to cushion it than a smaller wing, um, or, or lifting body, whatever, whatever, however you describe the YF twenty three. So, so does the computer then artificially um, sort of force the airplane down through that cushion of air uh, to simulate that kind of thing? How does it? How is it actually working? What's it actually doing?
1: Well, that, that's a good question, and the answer is it doesn't. Um, it doesn't simulate that exactly. Um, however, it uh, the, the TIFF's airplane itself has a fairly large ground effect cushion, uh, ground effect cushioning effect as you come into the flare, and so did the YF-23. That's just happenstance, but, but you're absolutely correct. It, those are, as I mentioned before, there's some areas of a flight envelope that we yet have put the detailed um, mathematics in the equations. We don't, we can't isolate that from a wind tunnel. We can't replicate it well with software. So those are one of the areas where it are, you might consider soft when you go out to flight test. So you're absolutely right. You, you don't put a check in a box for in-ground effect flying qualities exactly with the TIFs.
0: Okay. The, the other area I would have asked about if I'd been better prepared than is engines. I don't think I asked you anything about engines. And I in between, like I said, we, we, we talked originally in October, October or November, but it um, was only just released in January. But I went in between and looked at sort of various... Uh, things about the YF23 online And, and I saw references to engines as being you know perhaps material in the outcome of the competition and and there perhaps being um you know pressure to there were two teams weren't there there was GE with the YF120 engine and then there was the Pratt & Whitney YF119 and 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 there perhaps being pressure for the from the Air Force for the Pratt and Whitney team to be given priority over the GE team. I don't know if any of those things are true, but I wondered what um, your recollections of the two engines were and whether or not they were material in the outcome of the competition.
1: Uh, Unfortunately, I don't have any knowledge of how the internal machinations went when they went to select the uh, engines or the airplane, Um, but it certainly flew both engines. Um, The Pratt engine was... um, let's say, more conventional engine, uh, very well behaved uh, as most modern engines are. You could do anything with the throttle, slam it around and never never bark or backfire or compressor stall. It was a delight to operate. The EF120 was also uh, pretty much idiot-proof as far as uh, flying qualities go. Uh, It had a major difference from design point of view, and it was uh, what I call a dual-bypass engine. At high speeds, it could actually duck the air from the compressor uh, and from the combustors around the turbine so you didn't extract the energy from the airflow and it passed direct as a hot gas out the back of the uh, engine. So as a result, the F-120 engine actually had higher thrust capability than the F-119 engine. It was a more complex engine. Um, uh, Ironically... uh, got shot in the foot when they took the advice of an engineer from the Air Force. And he said he wanted to have the engine have a linear response. And that is that for every inch of throttle travel, you got the same percentage of thrust increase. So if you go 10% up on the throttle, you get 10% more thrust increase. Well, it turned out that that was a bad idea because uh, engines, jet engines, large jet engines have a lag. They have so much inertia in the mechanical turbine and compressor. They then simply don't uh, accelerate linearly. They kind of uh, up to uh, full throttle. And they tried to make it do that, and uh, as a result, the throttle response was actually rather poor. In fact, we could not air refuel the F-120 engine on the YF-23 using both throttles. It would not respond you know, in a fashion that allowed you to do precision flying behind the tanker. So what we did is we pulled one throttle idle and just use the, the single throttle, and that made it more uh, brought the throttle of the good engine or the operating engine up higher, where the thrust response was more uh, brisk, and allowed you to do the fine tracking that you needed. It would have it would have been changed in production by some simple software changes in the logic, but it uh, for the product for the uh, prototype engines it was a pain in the rear end. So,
0: so the GE engine then other than that. Uh, encumbrance with the, regards to the linear um, sort of thrust output uh, in response to the throttle um, was also carefree, no uh, compressor stall issues or anything like that?
1: Yes, yeah, the same as the F-119. And that's uh, pretty much state-of-the-art for jet engines today. We've been able to build this carefree abandoned concept into the uh, operation of uh, of all the jet engines.
0: What is behind that then? So I, I remember reading and talking to, to guys who were in the F-15 program early on the F-100 had, was you know sort of had some issues around compressor stalls and eventually they got it fixed so you could you know, sort you know saw the throttles backwards and forwards and and the airplane or well, the engines wouldn't wouldn't complain what is happening uh, inside the inlet what's happening at the compressor face to allow that sort of carefree operation then
1: well uh, first of all that the engines up to that time had not been built to the operating conditions that fighter engines operate at. And the airline operation of the engine, as you can imagine, is quite a bit more benign. You take off, you climb to altitude, you set your throttles and cruise for four hours, and then you descend and land. That is not the environment. And um, what was happening was that uh, they call them fighter cycles, air cycles. Uh, the rapid motion of the throttle stresses the engine in a thermal way and it stresses the metal inside in a a thermal and mechanical way from centrifugal force. So as you slam the throttle around in the engine, you're, you're exposing it to different stresses than an airliner engine would have. And on top of that, you have these issues of distorted airflow inside the inlet. For example, the high angles of attack where the speed is low, you can get turbulent flow up inside the engine and compressors generally don't like funny air coming at them um so all those uh, experiences of taking an airliner type mentality into a fighter world did not prove um, to be sustainable and we came back and looked at it engine companies came back and looked at it and came up with fighter cycles for operation as a throttle and then building the, the uh, mechanical control systems and digital control systems that could correct for things like flow turbulence inside the inlet um, High uh, high altitudes, low airspeed conditions, where the density of the air is low and uh, Reynolds numbers are are low, um, and really, it's the it's kind of like the flying qualities of the airplane. You know that flying qualities of the airplane are now determined by a computer. Our ability to properly change uh, the software to make it fly good, mm. and that's the same thing that happened with the engine. They changed the software to make it fly well. So. The things that would cause a compressor stall, they program around that. The engine has inlet guide vanes in in front of the compressors to change the airflow to the compressor blades. Um, They don't allow certain acceleration rates that they know would cause a compressor flow, so they slow the acceleration rate down if you're in that condition. Um, At high speeds, uh, high Mach numbers, they actually will freeze the RPM if you snap the throttle from max afterburner to idle. Engine won't come back to idle because that would have caused a compressor stall. So they slowly bring the engine back. So, unbeknownst to the pilot, unseen by the pilot, is a software working to give you carefree abandon.
0: Well, we behind. I mean, this might sound like a bit of a, a strange question, and it, it comes from a very limited uh, bit of knowledge that I have about engines. Which was, you know, the R twenty nine engine used in the MiG twenty three. There was an interlock, wasn't there? So when you If you were going very, very fast and you just pulled the throttle back, the engine wouldn't just come out and go to idle, you know, lest it sort of rip itself free of its mountings uh, or or do whatever. Um, But were we a little bit behind uh, other countries then? I say we, um, I'm British or American, but was the West a little bit behind, let's say, the the Soviet Union or Russia in the development of that sort of, of capability?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, we had our own approaches to, and, and we're talking about the MiG, early MiG series, those were not digital control systems. They were mechanical interlocks to prevent your from having difficulties. But in the world of flight controls, we did the same thing. We had interlocks and mechanical devices that controlled over Gs and, uh, uh, and uh, performance of the airplane. So I think everybody in all the countries, the aeronautical engineers and engine engineers, were progressing along with the technology of computers. So, I, I, that's an interesting observation. I didn't know that about the MiGs, but it certainly was indicative of that generation of airplanes. They, the problem was the same. You were going to compress yourself and pull the throttle from max power to idle at high speeds. And that's the same problem you would have today, except now we solve it with the digital computers. And not mechanical systems
0: there, there were two yf-23s and i noticed on your bio you 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 said you uh so you, you did the first flight of the yf-23 and you have ghost written next to it why were they different colors and different they had two different names it was ghost and was it gray ghost what was the name of the other one well they're both called ghost spider spider that's it why, why, why different names why different colors
1: I don't know. We never used those names. I, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's something that came out of the, the hype of it. I, I I absolutely don't know. And uh, okay. so we didn't use different names. And I, I can't tell you why they picked those colors uh, hmm. that was done by some people in management. Um, and, the, you know, the YF-22 was different as far as their colors go.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: It was, it was a choice of each individual contractor and they didn't come down and ask me, the pilot, what color you want your airplane.
0: <laughs> we, um, we'll get on to the YF-22 in a minute, but a, a question that sort of relates, uh, sorry, the, the F-22 in, in just a minute, but a question relates to that a little bit was at the back of your book. It's really interesting. There are all these models referenced throughout, little sort of uh, proof of concept type models that somebody must have made at, at um, Northrop, but they, um, there's one model and some diagrams for the F23 so the production the mm. proposed production variant of it and there are some changes there so i wanted to ask you um about the changes that go from a from a Y series aeroplane to an F an F series aeroplane um and there, those changes happened for the YF22 to the F22 as well uh, and one of them with the YF23 was the in- introduction of shock cones on the intakes on the underside of the aeroplane what what governs then the cementing of a design for production purposes how far can you take changes from a yf um and before you commit to a production series airplane and and i know that you can change production series airplanes you can bolt stuff onto them but but the fundamentals of what that design is how far can you go and why why do those changes arise
1: well, you can go further between a prototype and a production than you can't be between production uh, aircraft. So um, you're you're constantly learning. Uh, even though we built a YF-23, that was not the end of our learning. We were still doing wind tunnel tests, refinements, and and you take the results from the prototype and you say, geez, our flow down the inlet could be better improved with a cone as opposed to turbulators or something like that. So um, it's a learning process, and when you go from – well, first of all, the prototype airplanes are not uh, representative of a production airplane. Uh, they're built of bits and pieces of other airplanes. So for example, the waf 23 had parts from the space shuttle, T-37, helicopters, F-18s. Uh, it's a hodgepodge of parts. And the reason you do that is because for a small production size, which was two prototypes, you can't possibly afford to refine every component of that prototype just from a pure cost and schedule point of view. So right off the get-go, the prototype will not be like the production airplane. It's a given. Um, but you learn uh, from the flight test and from further wind tunnel testing and further structural testing, things that you want to incorporate it into the production design, and, and that's what happens.
0: Can, can you – it might be a bit of a stretch to ask if you remember – the rationale so you did just describe why you maybe want a shot a shot cone in, instead of uh, a turbulator, or whatever but, but but other changes around um, i think there's the control surfaces the, the tails are slightly smaller um, do you remember what went into that why, that uh, F23 design and, and some of the things that then influenced that
1: you know that another good example of uh, airplane pro- prototype first production was the going in thesis or assumptions of prototype atf and that was they would have in-flight thrust reversing up to 600 knots Mm. so at the most embryonic stages of thinking about an atf that was one of the constraints well if you can imagine throwing a big engine like an f 119 into at full power at 600 knots reversing the thrust direction you can imagine the structural loads that would be taken into the airframe and um, the air force did some testing with a F-15 Stole Maneuvering Technology Demonstrator, SMTD. And they came to the conclusion that a thrust reverser at high speeds was not going to be economically feasible. Um, However, that decision didn't come soon enough to affect the prototype. So the prototypes actually have much larger and heavier structure, and we call them the bread loads. So in a YF-23, if you look at the area where the engine inlets come up into the engines externally those are big lumps that look like a loaf of bread if you will and uh the airplane for production would not have had thrust reversing nor did the prototype so we got rid of all that structure for the production and move the engines slightly closer together mm. so that's what you see when you make the comparison
0: uh, i it might sound like a silly question but i'll ask it good at that why thrust reversing up to 600 knots? What was the purpose?
1: Well, somebody, boy, if you were dogfighting, if you could come to a stop in the air and let the other guy go screeching by you, you could get from being a defender to being an offensive position. I mean, it sounds great on paper, but the actual physics of it is uh, daunting.
0: So it's a bit of a, the equivalent of, a, the Harriers call it vectoring in forward flight, viffing, don't they, V-I-F-F, uh, so they they... they... To turn their thrust back, ve- um, thrust nozzles, whatever they're called, slightly forward of the nozzle stop, so that they they decelerate rapidly. But right. I thought the whole point of this thing was it was going to go out and and fly BVR, kill the enemy, you know, way out there, never really get to the point where it said emerge. And then if it did get to the merge, it was going to be super maneuverable, and you wouldn't have to do that kind of trick to. Um, to, to defeat your opponent, because isn't the whole sort of you know out of speed, out of ideas thing uh, uh, um, a truism for for the fighter pilot?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, and he, in fact, you can see that difference in approach to the solutions in the YF twenty two versus the YF twenty three. The YF twenty three went for a highly stealthy airplane that went fast. Uh, Lockheed went for a stealthy airplane, but compromise it a bit so it could have super maneuverability at very low speed using a thrust vectored engine. Classic dogfighting. Um, so Northrop's approach kind of led us towards a new world where you went beyond visual range invisibly and shot down the enemy invisibly and left. Hmm. And and Lockheed considered not only that scenario, but a scenario where now you merge with the enemy and now you want to outturn the enemy at low speed. So it will give you thrust vector. So the Air Force did not put any constraints on our designs. They were each contractor's hypothetical image of what an ATF should be. And that's why you come up with those two different dichotomies in the approach to slow-speed flight, high-speed flight, very low stealth or low stealth. Hmm.
0: Do you think, in in terms of the decision-making, we, we, we talked a bit about this last time, and, you, and in your presentation to the Peninsula, uh, seen as at the, the Museum of Flight, you give a very... Uh, candid description uh, i think you and um your colleague give a, a very candid description as to why you think the you know the competition went to the the Lockheed entry but uh, you know is that a is there an element of that then those two different design philosophies that could have influenced the air force do you think the air force really believed in bvr combat the ability to reach out and kill the the enemy and never merge
1: well old ideas die a hard death and um The the U.S. I may have mentioned this last time the U.S. Navy stayed with biplanes long after the Air Force had gone to a monoplane design. And the the story of in the Vietnam War, we took the gun off the F-4 and therefore we need to have a gun on the airplane at all times so you can shoot somebody down. That myth hangs around and hangs around, despite the fact. But the reason that we had those problems in Vietnam is because the air-to-air missiles were not reliable and were not that good. So you had to have something that was reliable and good, that's a gun, so let's put a gun on the airplane. But today, the missiles, the air-to-air missiles are generations beyond what we had in Vietnam, off boresight um, weapons, um, a BVR with capability to identify the enemy positively at long range, out of sight, Um, those issues would say you have less reason to put a gun on an airplane, Mm. and yet we have a gun on the F-22, because the old concepts die, and that's 600 pounds of weight that you carry around for an event that you hopefully never engage in, because once you start turning in a dogfight, you're subject to somebody jumping in on you and shooting you down. I I think the era of the gun, dog fighting, classic dog fighting is over. I'm still in the minority.
0: (laughs) What, uh, then just final question on on this and then we'll move on to to F-22. So there was also an FB-23 design. And obviously, I think in the book it shows an unfinished model, um, which would suggest that it was very nascent in in its um, sort of creation. Uh, did there were there discussions around that beyond making you know some you know some, some sort of paper designs of it and a and model was that something that you were because my understanding from our conversations and from reading the book is that this isn't uh, um, a tactical fighter with a an emphasis on air to air I don't see any I haven't heard any reference to the air to ground side of things so um, was that uh, on, on paper only FB 23 or were you Did you have half an eye on that as you went through the test program?
1: I had no insight into uh, advanced development projects, and uh, so I I can't answer that directly. Um, But advanced designs are are going on constantly on a new airplane. You figure out how you can transfer that technology into other uses, and that's what you're looking at is the advanced development group that does just that. They try to stay years ahead of what you're currently doing with concepts.
0: Okay, then let's talk F-22. I mean, there's the, the, for me, the elephant in the room is the avionics side of things. It's noteworthy that you don't really talk about the avionics at all in the book. You do talk about the concept of uh, sensor fusion. You talk about the ability to bring together your radar warning receiver, your radar picture, what's coming in maybe over a data link, bring them all together and merge them so that they... Present the pilot with a single coherent picture of the battle space, but you don't really talk about avionics tests or anything like that. And I know it's a sensitive subject, and I and I guess um, it must be even more sensitive than if you're going from one company you're working for, um, you know Northrop, and then you go and work for, for Lockheed, and those two have been competing against each other. And in our last interview, you did talk about how each company was developing its own capabilities, not just the airplane, but the sensor suite that was going to go in it. So I wondered, you know, as, as tactfully as, as possible and within the realms of what you're allowed to say, how did what you found when you went and flew the F-22, and again, bearing in mind it's a production, you flew the first production flight of the F-22, so perhaps things have moved on a bit since then, but how did you um, find the avionics in that versus what you guys have been talking about at, at Northrop?
1: Uh, very similar. Um, the uh, I, I was only on the peripheral of the avionics program because I left the F-22 <clears throat> before we got, well, we had the first avionics airplanes there, and I flew a couple of flights on that. But uh, the real heavy-duty testing occurred after I left the program. So I don't have a direct uh, answer to how it worked in the actual F-22, uh, other than the brief exposure I had uh, in uh, 2006 to it. Um, but, but they... They, the avionic systems were similar in the sense that they had to meet the same requirements, and that is you have to be able to see the enemy and the enemy can't see you. So your systems have to not give yourself away in the process of looking for the other guy, for the bad guy. And uh, and that drove the technology in a certain direction, and it drove the technology in a certain direction for both companies, Lockheed and Northrop.
0: I ended up... Um... Skipping quite far ahead, then, and the list of questions I could have asked you about F 22. So let's go back to the first one then. How did you end up getting hired by Lockheed? Um,
1: uh, my good friend Dave Ferguson was the chief test pilot in the YF 22. And um, we were sitting down one day and he said, You know, Dave, there's only going to be one winner out of this, and it's either going to be your company or my company. And he said, Yeah, I understand that. He said, Well, here's what we'll do the guy who loses we'll put a resume on the desk of the other pilot's desk the next day. I said, okay, that sounds like a good deal to me. Well, I, our company lost. I had a resume on Dave Ferguson's desk the next day, and for whatever reason, they decided to hire me. So uh, in 92, I went to, from Northrop over to Lockheed and began working on the uh, F-22 production airplane.
0: You would. Uh, your bio says you, you did about two hundred or so flights in the F twenty two. I think it was nine years or so. You 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 flew it for. Um, so did you come out of? Um, well, let's talk about your first flight in the in the F twenty two. and what did, what did you think about the F twenty two having flown it once, you know, twice, three times, whatever it is, enough I, to form I, an opinion? Yeah, I think
1: you said I, I flew it for nine years. I flew it in ninety seven to two thousand six. So okay, that was my period of time of flying i'm sorry not 2006 2001 so 97 to 2001 the so four years um the the expression is it flies like the simulator and if you if you get that you're all smiles and so it it did it flew uh, just like the simulator um we had few small problems but basically the flight control portion of it was right on the money and right right out of the box it was uh it's a good flying airplane. And, and that's to come to be expected with uh, what capabilities we have with computers nowadays. Um, I took part in the what's called envelope expansion, where you uh, take the airplane up and start to expand the envelope in speed and altitude and Gs and uh, structural testing. Uh, shoot weapons to make sure the weapons clear the airplane safely under various flying conditions. Uh, high angle of attack testing. Uh, That that tended to be the grist of what I did for the four years I was with the airplane. And like I said, the avionics airplanes came in right before I got out, and the bulk of the testing shifted from basic airframe and engine testing to avionics testing after I left. Hmm.
0: This might not be a very fair question to ask then, but I would be interested to know which which was your, from a handling point of view, which was your favorite and... You know, I know that they're separated in time. They're separated in um, development funds and and the maturity of the program. But if you were to pick YF twenty three or an F twenty two, which would you which would you want?
1: Well, they both flew delightfully. They both were, uh, for the young pilot, would be just a natural flying machine. There were no quirky portions of a flight envelope. There were no. Uh, like carefree, We use the term carefree abandon. They were carefree abandoned airplanes in the full sense of the word. You can do what you want to do with the airplane. It would respond and would keep you from getting hurt. And uh, so they both the same. Uh, a slight smidgen towards the YF-23 in terms of flying qualities, but uh, in the noise as far as the uh, difference between the airplanes.
0: One of the... Yeah, I guess it's sort of you know it all sort of makes sense and if you think back to what you were describing in your first interview about the maturing of um, technology and the availability of processing power and so on and so forth but one of the things that people say or have been saying for a while now is that flying these things then is very easy um, and they're designed so that really the pilot can just be a battle manager in effect you know running the sensors running the systems uh, is it an extremely easy airplane to land and take off and and fly with then in in the sense that you could take somebody with very little experience so they could do it or is this a, is, is carefree abandon a relative term
1: um, no carefree abandon is not a relative term because even if you're a lousy pilot it's going to protect you the airplane's going to protect the airplane airframe and the engine and no matter what you do now obviously you could dive it straight into the ground and kill yourself. Uh, although even that is becoming a a system that is overcome by um, digital computers, which have ground collision avoidance systems in it now. So even that, even though you want to commit suicide, you can't even commit suicide in these airplanes. But uh, they are they are built for doing just exactly what you said. Take the most productive pilots you've got. Take the least productive pilots you've got, and flying the airplane is going to be the lowest of their. Uh, needs or lowest of their requirements for, for completing the mission. It's very natural to fly the airplane. Um, what the question we always have to ask is what is the training for undergraduate pilot training? What does that airplane lead them to? Is it give them the skills, the motor skills to fly the high performance uh, fighter airplanes that they're going to? And the answer to that is yes. And um, if, you, if you have a chance to interview F-15 pilots, and I don't know whether you have, you can ask them about how easy it is to land the F-15. The answer is very easy, and uh, and so even in an earlier analog airplane, we've achieved some airplanes that are delightful flying qualities. And nowadays, we can almost guarantee delightful flying qualities.
0: You said, uh, Paul, you, you uh, a couple of times now that you've. Um, You know, you did a couple of flights in the avionics test beds for the the F-22, and and then you left the program. Uh, But going back five minutes, we were talking um, about high-off-bore sight weapons, that kind of thing. Is it noteworthy that the F-22 doesn't have a helmet-mounted system, helmet-mounted cueing system? It's AIM-9X compatible, so it can carry that high-off-bore sight um, sidewinder?
1: Yeah, and it's it's not a matter of we couldn't do it technically. Uh, It was a matter of could we afford it politically. Um, I just saw that the um, IR systems are going to go on the F-22 now. So that was another one that we had to give up from a uh, political point of view and funding point of view. And uh, we built those things into the F-35, but uh, the F-22 is now able to, from political and funding point of view, is able to put those things on the airplane, which should have been there originally, but we just couldn't afford it.
0: I think they made 187. I think it was 187 F-22s. Um, I, I know you're retired now. You said I think you got out in 2006. You retired in 2006, something like that. Uh, do you think that's enough F-22s for the wars we we you know the United States may be fighting may end up fighting in the uh, you know in uh, the conceivable future?
1: No. What? Okay. Should I be more specific? <laughs>
0: Yeah. Expand. What do you you think would have been a a better number? And and why is 187 not enough?
1: Well, uh, you know, the original number was 750. That was 750 airplanes was what the ATF was going to field. So you got to ask yourself, has the political environment or the international environment of the world changed to where 750 was the answer and 186 is now the answer? And I I don't think 186 air well isn't even that 186 because some of those were test birds. I don't even I don't think those are adequate for what's coming in the future. Um, only thing we can hope for is that there's something in the pipeline that will bring us the next generation of airplanes that it will be produced in enough quantity. Hmm. The difference between F thirty five production and F twenty two production is astounding. Yeah. One hundred eighty six versus. Uh, we don't know what the in number will be, but three thousand probably. Yeah,
0: and and I, I suppose importantly, there are a lot of uh, partner nations who are involved in the F thirty five program, but there were none in the F twenty two. And I, I, I don't really know enough about the F twenty two to to be able to answer, to be able to ask a, a good question about why that is. But presumably, some technology transfer issues would have been one of the considerations.
1: I suspect I don't I don't know either and it, it is interesting that the F35 has broken down whatever barriers there might have been in terms of technology transfer mm. to sell to the international market.
0: Mm. What did you do after the F22 then? That's all F35 on your buyer.
1: Yeah, I was uh, asked to take on a desk job. I became vice president of flight test for the F35 so I put down my G-suit and picked up a pencil and put on a tie
0: and How did f- that. How did you feel about that?
1: Oh, don't ask me that, Steve. <laughs> Gene, <laughs> what do you think? You're asking a pilot what he thinks about a desk job? You know the answer.
0: Was Was there any flying element to that at all and no chase work?
1: It was a desk job, Steve. What can I tell you? <laughs>
0: I don't. I'm not even inspired to ask any questions about that. No, okay, but seriously, what? So, what? What were the challenges behind that? Then the the F thirty five test program. I mean, it's still it's still ongoing. I mean, it it never stops, does it? It's a it's a cyclical process. But well, well was, you.
1: The interesting thing was it blended all the services together. In fact, it blended international services together. And guess what? They all do things differently. And so we had. Variations on what you needed for a weapons test program, uh, what you needed for, you had to put carrier programs into the test program for the carrier birds and how about those Harrier type airplanes, what do you do with those? So we had all these uh, inputs to build one test program for three different versions of the airplane and multiple countries ways of certifying an airplane is safe and will do its job. It, the Brits have a totally different process than the Americans do. So the the difficulty was um, integrating the people because we also had not just Northrop or Lockheed, but we had the services, all the services had their own people that came to work with us. So you have to integrate different personalities, different cultures, different mindsets uh, into a single type of approach. And that was that was the most demanding part of that program, especially early on.
0: How long did you do that for? How do you do that? How long did you do it for?
1: I got out, I retired in 2006, so 2001
0: to 2006. Okay. And, and so, so what was your last flight then? Did you do a finny flight of some description on the F-22?
1: No, I, I one day I walked back in and uh, I was getting ready to go on another flight. And I, I, I can still remember this very vividly. I bent down to zip up the zipper on my left G-suit leg and said, that's it. I was done.
0: Really?
1: Yeah, that was just that that instantaneous uh, response, and I I don't know why, but I was I I felt I'd accomplished what I wanted to accomplish in the world of flight, and uh, I was done. And so I voluntarily uh, stepped down and uh, accepted a job in the F thirty five program.
0: So was there. I'm not prepared to accept that that was just that, was just that moment. I'm, 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 I want to know why. Why did that moment arrive then? So was there was there an element of self-preservation that was there? So you'd achieve what you wanted to achieve, but uh, does, you know, is this, you know, to use the cliche, young man's game, a young woman's game, um, you know, you've got to be sharp, you've got to have the reactions, you know, you don't want to run out of uh, luck, whatever, you know, because you, you think about your career, you know, flying wild weasels in Vietnam was a really long time ago. And uh, then flying the F-22, that was, you know, those were worlds apart. So do you think, maybe I'm digging for something that doesn't exist. I just, how did you feel about it?
1: No, I I think that's an excellent idea, but probably the thousands of things that were running through my mind were many of those things you just mentioned. And all of a sudden, the, the pieces of the puzzle came together, the equations lined up, and the answer came out to be, it's time to end this. And and it just was that. It wasn't painful. It wasn't uh, a eureka moment. It's sort of like it was meant to be, at least in my mind. So uh, that's why I hung up the G-suit.
0: Do you fly um, general aviation? Because uh, you, you, you've flown gliders at the uh, test pilot school. Um, sorry, no. Was it test pilot school you forgot about that? Or was it, was it yeah. Pax River? No,
1: no. Well, Pax River is test where the test pilot school is located. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. No, I don't uh, fly anymore. You miss it? No, not really. I uh, flew radio controlled airplanes to keep my hand in the flying uh, for a while. But uh, even that uh, I put aside. So no, I don't I don't miss it. I I thank the Lord that I was given those opportunities in my life to do it. That was uh, very gratifying and very exciting work to do. But I have no regrets.
0: I read your in your bio that you worked for, I can't, global or something or another. I forget that, but it was a space space tourism type business.
1: Yeah, rocket plane global.
0: Rocket Plain global. What was yeah. that all about then? And what did you do?
1: Well, at the time, <clears throat> I think there were like seven companies that pr- private companies that were building space tourism type of platforms, um, and only two have survived: Blue Origin and. Uh, uh, Starship uh, programs are the ones that survived. But it was 2008, we were building, Rocket Plane was building a uh, suborbital tourism type ride, quarter of a million dollars per ticket, and uh, would have been based on a Lear uh, Learjet type of airframe with an Atlas rocket motor in the tail of it. You would take off under conventional jet power get up to altitude, light the rocket motor and go up to the Armstrong line at 300,000 feet, glide wow. back and land. So it was, it was the same sort of thing that you're seeing, uh, on TV now with, uh, William Shatner and other c- celebrities taking their ride in, in space. Um, but it happened at a time when the, uh, we went into recession, 2008, great depression, very recession. And, um, all the companies folded except for those two companies, hmm. and uh, they have they have missed their target dates to fly. And I've noticed that um, they're not flying as regularly as they had hoped to fly. So they're still working out the bugs of space tourism.
0: Returning then to you, I can't help but wonder how somebody who's you know led the the life that you have led can just you know. Re- just give everything up. I mean, I don't mean give up in a sort of quitting judgmental kind of sense, but, you know, just, you know, lay, lay that down as something that was a, a an old chapter and, and begin a new chapter. What, what do you do to keep your mind busy? Obviously you've, um, you've done some speaking tours or some, some speaking, um, sort of sessions, but what do you, what do you do to keep busy?
1: Oh, it seems like, uh, I'm busy all the time. Uh, I, I write books. I'm doing an F20 book now. Um, I, uh, I've been teaching my grandchildren uh, 10 and uh, 12 years old. I've been teaching them advanced mathematics while we've been in their COVID. So I've <laughs> done lessons, many lessons on uh, everything from uh, parabolas to uh, statistics. And uh, we actually throw in some calculus for them, and they're, they're quite young to be doing that. But wow. so I, I find that sort of thing interesting and intriguing. And uh, I... Um, I do historical uh, things. I'm working on a program for a Korean War vet who uh, received a Navy cross and his pilot received a Medal of Honor for a daring rescue in the Korean War. And I'm trying to uh, get the recognition for that individual uh, as they should have had back in 1951, but they didn't get it. So I I keep busy. I have a, I call it the ranch, five-acre plot that keeps me busy and repairing things. And so I'm never for want of work. but uh, I, I once had an instructor pilot in T-38s, and uh, somehow we got on the same subject that we're talking about, giving up flying. And he said, Paul, he says, someday you'll come, wake up and you'll know that it's no longer the thing to do to be jumping in an airplane. And I thought at the time, this is crazy, man. This is the greatest thing in the world. Why would you say that? Well, it turns out he was right. And I, I was wrong. It happens.
0: Did you pass on the bug to your children uh, or are your grandchildren likely to pick up some of the aviation bug from you? No. <laughs> no?
1: <laughs> no. Uh, my, my oldest son, we flew radio control airplanes when he was a kid, and uh, he loved it, but uh, and none of them picked up that direction. But they're all good kids. They're all doing their own thing, and that's the only thing I've ever asked for them is do your own thing and do it well.
0: Do, do you... Do you uh, it might, it might sound, and it's probably a, a, a personal question. It might sound a bit of an odd question to ask, but do you think your children or your grandchildren really s- sort of know about? Because I don't get the sense that you're the sort of guy goes around bragging about the things he's done. I mean, I get the sense that you're quite unassuming. Um, you know, maybe a little coy, uh, and 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 probably. Um, has an economy of words about him I mean, I, I, that's the sense I get from you so do you do you think that your sort of friends and family really understand I mean that's not wrong word understand but the, do you think they really get it do you really they get what you did and, and how special your achievements were
1: um, I don't care um, what I, <laughs> what I care about is whether they uh, find me dad or grandpa uh, that that's who I am and that's who I intend to be for them. I'm not going to be some hero on a pedestal. Mm. And that's that's not what I think is important in life. So I hope you remember me for the way I interact with them.
0: Well, I, I um, thoroughly have appreciated your time and uh, it's um, been an education speaking to you. So thank you very much, Paul. Um, thank you for coming on the channel. And thanks for... A, a, being so gracious when it was very apparent after my first interview that I hadn't prepped properly. You didn't beat me you didn't beat me up or out at you uh you just said yeah we can we can come in and do a second interview. So I appreciate the opportunity to reattack that.
1: Well Steve, you do a marvelous job with these presentations. I enjoyed watching them and uh hope you keep it up.
0: Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to Ten Percent True. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe and if you're on YouTube hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks and take care.